0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Despite what you might have heard from recent protests, Canada is not divided over vaccination. Currently in my province of Ontario, and the results are not much different anywhere else in the country, more than 92% of people over age 12 have received at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. I'm not going to fight over mandates or anything else today. I am using that number only to point out that it is getting harder and harder to find the remaining unvaccinated Canadians and to convince them to get their shots. So this is where strip clubs come in. I'm not joking. Who could have predicted that a key weapon in our fight to vaccinate everyone in Canada could be found inside some of the businesses that have suffered most from COVID restrictions. And it's not just the strip clubs themselves that deserve the credit. It is the people who set up shop inside them to take the vaccines directly to the communities that need them. Today, we'll meet one of those people. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Ellie Attaker is a board member at Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project, which is an organization run by and for sex workers. Hey, Ellie.
1: Hi there. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. I'm going to get you to start uh, for our listeners who live outside Toronto and those who might live in Toronto uh, who aren't familiar with it. First, tell us about Fillmore's. What and where is it? Describe it.
1: So Fillmore's is a a local strip club in the downtown core of Toronto. So it's right by Yonge and Dundas Square, which is like a very heavily populated area of the city. And it's one of the sites where we hosted uh, a few of our vaccine clinics out of.
0: Tell me about those clinics. Um, This isn't the one at Fillmore's was not your only one. You've been doing this for a little bit. Tell me about them.
1: Yeah, so to date, Maggie's has run uh, about ten community vaccine clinics out of everywhere from places like strip clubs, bathhouses, even public parks, churches. uh, So a wide range of of sites. But basically, our goal is to expand vaccine access to community, especially sex workers. Obviously, we're a sex worker justice organization, and so one of the things that we found through the pandemic is that so many people in our communities were struggling not only to access vaccines and now things like rapid tests and booster shots, but also just like basic humanitarian aid, things like food, uh, emergency benefits and, and aid to survive the pandemic.
0: So these are low barrier clinics. Can you explain what that means?
1: Sure. So the the concept of a low barrier clinic was something that, that, that's been really important to us. And so when we started these vaccine clinics in um, March of 2020, 2021, one of the things that we that we'd seen was that the way that Ontario was enrolling um, vaccine access was largely based off of being able to prove your address, uh, prove your health coverage, where you worked. Um, And one of the things that we noticed was that for a lot of people in our community. Um, who had lost their homes, who were living out of encampments or living on the street um, for undocumented community members, um, as well as people uh, who may not just have access to things like basic ID or, or papers or documentation. That was a very massive barrier. And so the concept of a low barrier clinic is to make sure that people have access to Um, to the vaccines without necessarily needing to provide things like proof of address, um, employment records, OHIP coverage, or anything like that. So we don't ask for ID. Um, We don't require people to book appointments or anything like that.
0: How popular have they been?
1: To date, we've vaccinated just over 3,600 people. And I think when we get uh, quite a bit of feedback around like the low barrier concept itself, and so I know that for for folks that had struggled to access vaccines, not even just in Toronto, we've heard stories from people who travel five to eight hours to come into the vaccine clinics to be able to access them in the first place. Um, that they'd really been looking for something um, which uh, with a lower barrier sort of access point.
0: I'm going to try to ask this um, delicately, but this is something I saw pop up right around when. Uh, The clinics were first announced, not so much now when vaccines are widely available at pharmacies everywhere, but were you concerned at all that uh, people who might not need these services but couldn't book an appointment elsewhere or just didn't want to would take advantage of the fact that, you know, you didn't need an ID or you didn't need a health card and just sort of jump the queue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in any in any form of like social service, community organizing, you know, anything from food banks to local drop in programs, like there's always a concern around um, people accessing services or supports that maybe um, they don't necessarily have such an urgent need for. But at the same time, I think uh, the work that we do at Maggie's, you know, we are, we are ultimately like a harm reduction organization. So we do everything from like street outreach to local drop in programming and services. And one of the models that we operate under, especially serving sex workers, because it's so important to be able um, to sort of operate from a place of assuming people are, are working in good faith and no questions asked is assuming that if people are coming through to access a resource, they're doing that because they've assessed their circumstances and they've decided they need those things. And so, I think on our end to provide like widespread access to vaccines at these clinics, you know, I think ultimately if there were, if there were a few people who attended those spaces that could have waited to book appointments, but ultimately we were able to reach undocumented folks, people living on the streets, dancers going into work the day of, um, and other sex workers as well. I, I feel as though these efforts have really been worth it. And I, I'm a really big proponent of this low barrier model because I think one of the things that we've seen a lot through the pandemic, not even just in communities of sex workers, but also just within the general public as well, is a great deal of loss. You know, like in mm-hmm. in Toronto, we're seeing um, a, a wide increase in things like evictions, for example. The populations living on the streets and encampments in our local shelter system right now have expanded rapidly. And I don't believe that, We, as clinic organizers or anyone doing community services or supports, um, can necessarily look at a person at first glance and determine what their struggle is or what their need is. It's really important that we leave that choice up to the people themselves.
0: Why is it up to you guys to do this? Why isn't this being done by uh, health organizations or, frankly, by the government?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot of the same questions around that. And, you know, Hmm. from, from Maggie's perspective, like as a sex worker justice organization, we were required to step up and expand a lot of our services and supports um, from March of 2020 on in ways that I don't think we'd ever really dream possible. And I know coming from the perspective of like a sex worker justice organization, we work with communities who are heavily criminalized and stigmatized already. So even outside the context of like a deadly global pandemic, you know, sex workers experience criminalization, um, experience a lot of stigma and shaming from political leaders um, and, and other forms of institutions as well. And so on our end, I think that as a as a sex worker justice organization, it was really important to be able to step up and provide things like vaccine access just because of all the barriers that sex workers face already in existing in trying to access basic forms of healthcare, Right. And the consequences mm-hmm. that come because of the criminalization of sex work. Right. Like there there is a very real risk of going to a doctor or a hospital. And having to disclose that you're a sex worker and the impact that that can have on someone's life, right? Like people's mm-hmm. housing, their child custody, their education, their work, all those things can be threatened just because of the, the criminalization and the stigma around sex work itself. And so from Maggie's perspective, we wanted to be able to provide vaccine access, but also just other forms of basic health care and humanitarian aid to our community um, by trying to lower lower that barrier a little bit.
0: In a second, I'm going to get you to hopefully speak on um, some of the challenges faced by sex workers and others during the whole pandemic, not necessarily just around vaccination, as you alluded to. But first, I have to ask, and I know you've been to some of them, so and I think people are very curious. Can you just take us inside a clinic at Fillmore's or Zanzibar? I think a lot of people are curious about what it's actually like to get your shot at a strip club.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the the strip club venues themselves are... Are, are quite interesting. And, and admittedly, one of the reasons why we why we chose to run vaccine clinics at of spaces like that in the first place was because of some of the very public remarks that we saw from Mayor Tory and Premier Ford that sort of specifically targeted strippers, strip clubs, and, and clientele in those spaces at the beginning of the pandemic. But I mean, when you really walk into one of these clinics, you know, we're partnering with everyone from like Toronto Public Health to University Health Network, uh, major hospitals and, and community health centres. And so you know, you see, you see a lot of, uh, of, of things that are quite similar to other clinics, you know, the vaccination stations, the healthcare staff, the aftercare sections. Um, we had food and water for people at one point as well um, at earlier clinics, too. And so a lot of what you actually see when walking into the clinic is quite standard. I mean, maybe the only thing that's quite different is just sort of the visual of the strip club itself. Mm-hmm. Um which I think for a lot of people uh, coming in, you know, we were at the Fillmore's clinic, actually. We were vaccinating dancers right up until the point where their shifts started and making Mm -hmm. sure their families and kids had access to vaccines as well. And so the venue was really important to us and I think was quite flashy for a lot of people, but also significant because it was really important for us to be able to bring vaccines and that kind of healthcare access directly to where sex workers are.
0: Well, even before uh, we had a vaccine passport system here in Ontario, I remember that several strip clubs were kind of the first businesses to announce that they would require proof of vaccination, both for their workers, but also for their clients. What is it about the sex work industry that has made them the ones willing to take the lead on that?
1: You know, I think I think that the The response that we've seen from from strip clubs, but also if we look at like other agencies, for example, in Toronto, I think at the heart of it really comes the fact that there are a lot of sex workers that push uh, for workplace rights and protections in those spaces. And they're they're launching these very convincing campaigns to employers. And so it's nice. It's nice to see strip clubs to see other agencies uh, and massage parlors sort of like take on those sorts of mandates to make sure that folks are vaccinated. And I think ultimately it is an issue of workplace health and safety to make sure that uh, exotic dancers, massage workers going into these spaces are able to walk into spaces with safer working conditions.
0: In general, as you mentioned, kind of from March 2020 onwards, how has the pandemic impacted strippers and sex workers in general?
1: I think the impact has been pretty far reaching and and unexpected for for a lot of folks across uh, different forms of sex work. And, 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 you know, also at Maggie's, we talk a lot about how the term sex work in and of itself really is an umbrella term that captures so many different forms of work with varying levels of contact. And so when we talk about this term sex worker, you know, we're talking about everyone from like, Phone sex operators to full service sex workers to strippers to uh, adult actresses to OnlyFans models. So there mm-hmm. is quite a wide range.
0: Are there any challenges that they kind of share across the industry?
1: Absolutely. So I mean, I think that you know some of the some of the most obvious things we saw from the beginning of the pandemic were obviously a lot of the workplace closures and shutdowns. So we saw a lot of strip clubs, massage parlors, uh, and spaces completely close their doors. Um, In the context of of strip clubs and for exotic dancers working in Toronto, you know, the city was still requiring many to pay licensing fees to to acquire, to renew their licenses right through this time of workplace closures. So many were still having to pay the city licensing fees uh, for a period of time where they weren't actually able to work for for nearly a year at one point through the pandemic. Um, So we've seen things like workplace closures, loss of income for people. Um, And inaccessibility of things like CERB and other forms of like government aid and support just due to some of the stigmas and the criminalization and the loss that comes with them with sort of the, the stigma and criminalization around sex work itself. And so on our end at Maggie's, we really had to work to fill some of those gaps. So we've done everything from March 2020 until now, from, you know, emergency aid funds, we were literally just giving money to sex workers to be able to survive, to pay rent. We'd run emergency food box programming for just about two years now, delivering food directly to community. We do street outreach and harm reduction work, drop-in programming for folks, um, as well as these vaccine clinics to make sure that people have access uh, to the vaccines, but also just other forms of basic health care. And I think maybe another issue that we're really starting to see peak right now is a dramatic increase in the population of folks living outdoors as well.
0: I'm glad you mentioned um, the benefits programs, because that's something I've been curious about. We've talked a ton about them on this show throughout the pandemic. uh, There are programs to help essential workers and small businesses. And you mentioned CERB and also, you know, large employers uh, got employment benefits. Has there been any of those programs accessible to sex workers? Uh, Do any of them qualify for CERB? Is there anything else in place?
1: My answer is no to this. And I think especially with programs like CERB, you know, there are there are tax codes that sex workers can use to file uh, their taxes as self employed, as independent contractors like those things exist. But I think for as long as Sex work is criminalized, and there is sort of the, the the shaming and the stigma, um but also the criminalization of this work. It will never be safe to really access um, benefits through like those sorts of mechanisms. And I think at Maggie's as well, you know, we we deal with a, with quite a wide range of of community doing sex work, and so you know, there are folks that maybe have access and can file their taxes in that way and and provide that documentation around their income. We also do a lot of work with street based sex workers and people. Living Living out of encampments that don't necessarily um, have access to being able to provide like their histories of work or income or anything like that. And so on one hand, there are there are barriers that exist to uh, accessing government aid through the criminalization of the work and just everything at risk uh, that comes from like naming the fact that you are a sex worker All the way to some of the challenges that, you know, undocumented community members face in trying Mm -hmm. to access those services and supports. And so ultimately, no, there has been no meaningful support for sex workers outside of the work that sex worker justice organizations have done in Toronto to try and fill those gaps.
0: As we go on and hopefully eliminate some of the stigmas around sex work, what kinds of things could governments do? To help with that, if a government would listen to you right now and, and, you know, hopefully another wave is not approaching of this pandemic, but let's say one does. And, and someone in the Ontario government says, we've missed the boat on this. What do sex workers need in order to be safe during another wave of the pandemic? What would you ask for?
1: I mean, I think that there, there are just so many things. And a lot of the issues that sex workers are facing through the pandemic right now are tied to things like uh, rent moratoriums, access to housing, um, access to uh, decent housing conditions, expanding our shelter system and social supports. But I think directly related to the issues that sex workers are facing right now, ultimately, it's the decriminalization of all forms of sex work mm-hmm. and the removal of all criminal laws, provincial regulations and bylaws that are used against sex work. So for example, you know, one of the things that we'd seen in Toronto through the when when the emergency orders were established was this expansion of police powers that allowed bylaw officers and Toronto police to specifically target sex workers through the guise of like COVID protections and distancing regulations and so things like this that during a pandemic where people are losing their homes and don't have access to government aid and don't have access to food or vaccines to survive that sex workers are still having to worry about being criminalized and further scrutinized by police for that time we We need to make sure that every single form of municipal, provincial and federal regulation that allows that uh, is completely eliminated.
0: The last thing I want to ask you um, is about the stigma around sex work in general. And I always wonder when I talk to people involved in this work, if if I'm asking from a point of view inside a fairly progressive bubble that I live in, is the stigma attached to sex work in general? Is it decreasing? Is there meaningful progress being made in terms of, you know, we hear the phrase sex work is work and and I'm surrounded by a lot of people who believe that. So I always wonder if uh, that's infiltrating the mainstream at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the conversation around like sex workers rights and sex worker justice has really come a long way over the last few decades. But I think from our perspective at Maggie's, you know, As long as we have community members that, you know, in February of 2022 are literally freezing to death outside in Toronto in the cold right now, Mm -hmm. for as long as we have police and local bylaw enforcement officers exploiting their powers through this pandemic to sort of systematically target sex workers, we still have quite a long way to go, you know, for as long as sex workers in our community can't talk to doctors about their work openly, can't talk to their like schools or, or risk losing their work or their kids or their homes uh, for being associated with sex work generally, we still have a very long way to go. And I think from our perspective at Maggie's as well, when we talk about sex worker justice, like we're talking about the the total decriminalization of this work. And so the removal of all federal, provincial, municipal regulations that are used to criminalize sex work, but then also... You know, very important struggles around anti-poverty movements in the city as well, making sure people have access to affordable housing, to meaningful social assistance, right? Movements for racial justice, for trans rights as well. Like Mm -hmm. all of these things kind of go together because of the, you know, the different identities and experiences and backgrounds that sex workers come from. So we're definitely making important strides. And I credit that to sex worker Uh, rights movements and sex worker justice organizers, we still have a very long way to go.
0: I know I said that was the last question, but now I have um, a couple more quick ones. And the first is, in terms of decriminalizing all sex work, is there a political party out there right now uh, who has that on their platform, who is pushing for that? And then um, my second question is just simply uh, as we end off, if somebody's been listening to this and uh, they want to know how they can help, what can they do?
1: Sure. So, I mean, the the first question in terms of the political parties that are, that are taking up decriminalization. Um, I think that you know that's that's been a conversation that our our national network, the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law reform, has really been spearheading, and I don't think that we've seen much movement uh, from the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party, especially who introduced B- bill c thirty six which is the current federal regulations that sort of criminalize sex work nationally
0: mm-hmm.
1: um I believe there's been some movement from the NDP and also from the Green Party as well, uh, but nowhere near the kind of movement that we need to see to really like meaningfully decriminalize our work right and so there's there's sort of that political piece and ultimately what ends up happening is that because of the criminalization of the work it's frontline organizations like ours that are sort of tasked with dealing with what can often be like the traumatic aftermath of what criminalization looks like right and that means like court and jail support for sex workers addressing community who have been violated by police or by courts or, or by the criminal justice system and so we're not seeing the kind of movement that we need to be seeing, especially in a moment right now where, as I said, you know, we're serving community members who are literally freezing to death in the cold, who are literally being targeted by police and by the criminal justice system right now through a deadly global pandemic. And so there's so much more on a political front that that could and, and must be done.
0: So how can our listeners help?
1: I think the most important thing that listeners can do right now to support sex worker justice organizing is to literally uplift and to donate and financially support sex worker justice organizations locally. So Maggie's, for example, in Toronto, we do everything from street outreach, we do harm reduction work, social, political, legal support for community members, as well as this whole other suite of pandemic supports we've had to just sort of uh, launch and expand through this pandemic from food security stuff to, to legal aid to healthcare access. And so we're, we're doing so much work to be able to meet community needs and fill the gaps created by criminalization and created by local, provincial, federal governments that we, we really do need that kind of direct support. And I think that for, for those who are outside of Toronto, you can find your local sex worker justice organizations across Canada simply by looking up the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform and just go through the list of member groups that are there and you'll find groups organizing in your communities as well.
0: Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time for us today. And uh, thank you for all the work you guys are doing.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate
0: it. Ellie Attacur of Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us, as always, on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn and send us emails anytime you think you have something to say that we should hear at The Big Story Podcast. That is all one word at rci.rogers.com. You can subscribe to The Big Story Podcast in any podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, whatever. Doesn't matter. Leave a rating, leave a review, tell us what you think, and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.